The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Um, before I get into the talk, I'm curious about uh, your direct experience with that meditation on the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Um, not sure everybody tried it or uh, if they found it valuable, but I'm wondering if anybody did explore um, a direct experience of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral experiences. Anybody want to raise their hand if they were able to do that? He was just here. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Oh, we have someone over here first. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I found that very interesting, Temple. It was uh, mostly I, I work with it unpleasant because, you know, sitting the body. Hmm. And um, I found the neutral uh, very, very relaxing, very comforting. Uh, it's not a place I tend to put my attention. Hmm. So just having, you know, the the instruction to to flow with it and put my attention on it. So it was um, just my hands touching the my knees. You know, just that awareness and not necessarily associating pleasant or unpleasant, which is such a habit. Right. You know. So it was very helpful. Hmm. Thanks Great. very much. Thanks for sharing that. You know, I would just say the same thing. That was really stood out for me how quickly my mind went to the negative. And uh, even with the positive, okay, well, this is a little positive, I guess, and then something negative. Nope, nope, that's not what we're doing now. Hmm. And the neutral is even more elusive. So hmm. it sounds like it's a good practice. Thank you. Yeah. Anybody else want to comment on their experience? You have one back there. I actually had the easier time with the pleasant hmm. um, because my breath could help me just relax more and that relaxation was very pleasant and I noticed that quite a bit. And the unpleasant was difficult because, and that was surprising because I usually have a hard time getting comfortable <laughs> when I sit for a while. And for some reason today I was in a perfect place and it was so hard <laughs> to find anything unpleasant. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Audrey. Um, I found in the unpleasant, I kept drifting off to something else. Right. Right. That's um. <clears throat> there, there are skillful ways to work with pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Um, it's a lot of our experience, uh, and it's in the classical teachings to be aware of whatever your direct experience is, and that's already pretty profound to know that you're hearing when you're hearing and that you're not just a lost and adrift or that you're feeling the pulse in your body or heat, any pressure or weight. And so in the foundations of mindfulness, the four foundations of mindfulness, the first foundation is just what is your direct sensory experience? And a lot of us will spend time in our meditation practice, our mindfulness practice, just trying to show up enough to feel anything versus being adrift in our, the chaos of our minds. So coming in to even feel one breath or even hear a car go by, and even feel anything in the body at all is a lot of our practice. 
But then also in these teachings on mindfulness, the next thing we're asked to study very closely is this quality of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And it's a strange thing here in the West as we teach and as we try to let people know about mindfulness, so much of us are just trying to show up and then when we show up, oh, thank God, I'm breathing and I can feel it, be relaxed, not so lost, and feel that. We don't actually spend a lot of time uh, guiding people into feeling this tone, this pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And the Pali word is Vedana, and there isn't really a good translation, so I'm going to use Vedana um, to talk about pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. That's your Pali word for the day. And maybe some of you have spent time exploring that if you spent time studying, because it's in the classical literature. And it's a very important thing to know, because if you're going to struggle with experience, we have different ways that we struggle with pleasant experiences, different ways that we struggle with neutral experiences, and different ways that we struggle with unpleasant experiences. And so if you're not going to be with whatever's happening in your life, it's good to know this quality, this quality of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, because it can give you an insight into um, what type of agitation and stress you're having, whether you're struggling with pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral experiences. And I'll get to that in just a bit. And then we do, uh, we do have uh, a lot of awareness over the states of our mind and heart. We are encouraged to know when we're angry. We're encouraged to know when we're happy. We're encouraged to know the difference between a calm state and a restless state. And that's the third foundation of mindfulness, is knowing the quality of heart and mind as they change through the day and keeping track of that. So it's good to know uh, if you're starting to get irritated that that's happening before the irritation takes over and then you're in uh, a state of anger and frustration and believing the stories that come along with that state of heart and mind. So knowing your emotional states, knowing your mental states uh, are very helpful. But the Vedana quality, this pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, um, I think it gets talked a lot about uh, intellectually, but um, not so often explored directly. And it's good to know. It's really good to know what happens when you come into pleasant experiences. Then you might watch several things happen that are very uh, closely related to pleasant experiences. So sometimes when we connect to pleasant experiences, a sense of ease will kind of drift over us. Well, it's pleasant. So there's a sense of like, ah, life is good. You can shift your attention. You can do it uh, consciously if you want. If you're finding that you're struggling with something, you can be mindful of something pleasant momentarily and just watch your nervous system relax around that it can brighten up a little bit. A sense of hope can come in when we're connecting to pleasant experiences. I think that's why we consciously and unconsciously reach for chocolate so often. It's just to, even though we don't even stop to really enjoy it, there's just a little bit more ah to life as the chocolate hits the tongue or whatever your pleasant experience is. And it's often why when we're doing uh, breathing meditation, which is usually neutral for people, and if you're asthmatic or you have trouble breathing or if there's pain in your chest, breathing can actually be uh, an unpleasant experience. And it's not the best um, uh, meditation object to be steady with if you find that breathing 
causes a little agitation, that it's work to be there. You want to find a slightly pleasant to neutral object to rest your mind on so that you get the lift of the pleasant and the relaxation of the neutral. But often, because the breath is neutral, our connection to it is it's hard to stay committed to neutral experiences. And so any thought that whips through that's either pleasant or unpleasant will catch on to it because it's got a little more charge. And then we're off chasing the pleasant or unpleasant experience, one thought leading to another. Or as many people said, you can have unpleasant experiences in your body and they have a strong gravitational pull or repulsion. And so you can get overly obsessed with something unpleasant and drawn into it. Or it's so unpleasant that you don't even want to go there. And so your, your mind is trying to be somewhere else than that pain. And there's a tension of getting lost and sucked into it like a black hole. Um, or being kicked out and into fantasy and an unwillingness to be uh, present with unpleasant experiences. And so consciously moving between them, you can, uh, you can contrast them. You can contrast pleasant experiences, neutral experiences, and unpleasant experiences. And then you can choose which it actually would be beneficial for you. You know, spending some time in pleasant experiences is really restorative to the mind, the heart, and the body. And the loving-kindness practice that's taught is often that. It's a chance to refresh your heart, refresh your mind on something uplifting, something where you can breathe a little deeper and lift up a little bit. And there are a lot of reflections also in this um, this discourse on mindfulness. There were 40 classic meditation techniques of which breathing and body sensations are the most important and the most common. But the other ones are to balance out habits and tendencies in the heart and mind. So uh, reflecting on things that are uplifting is important, especially if your spirits are beginning to sag uh, or you're um, starting to um, have too many negative associations and you can feel a droop happening. So knowing how to brighten up your own mind, but then not being stuck in that realm, always chasing something pleasant because then you can't meet the full of your life. You can't meet neutral experiences, common experiences. You'll just be spacing out, always looking for the next goodie to come through. Um, So knowing how to be with neutral experiences, common experiences. And then uh, knowing how to be with unpleasant experiences um, they're a part of life. And that's bad news if you hope that wasn't true. But coming to terms with unpleasant experiences, pains in the body, neither being obsessed with them, drawn into them, drowning in them, or numbing out, blocking them, pushing them away. And that's, there's a whole healing process that can begin if you have pain in the body by knowing how to attend it how to let your attention rest in unpleasant experiences, maybe some place where there's injury, or maybe some place where you have emotional stress in the body um, because of a mental, um, a mental pain, you might have built up a physical association with that. So knowing how to be with unpleasant experiences internally is important for your own health and your own self-management, not just quickly getting rid of them, but knowing how to relate to them before you intervene. But then also knowing how to be with external 
experiences that are unpleasant and uh, not being a lightweight to life, but being able to meet the full range of the life that you have and respond to it effectively, creatively, but by staying in relationship to it and not numbing out. So there's um, there's a analogy that um, has been working for me lately, and I'll share it with you. And that's when um, when I was a young boy, I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island, and at least once a year, our school would take a trip up to the Boston Aquarium, and it's a huge, huge, huge aquarium, uh, maybe couple of stories tall and massive, round, covered in windows. And you get to see all these fish swimming through. And they have sharks in there, and that was very exciting to young kids. Um, you always wanted to see the shark. But also many schools of small fish and barracuda and uh, angelfish coming by, seahorses, all this life swimming around. And the state of uh, freedom that's possible in mindfulness in Buddhist training um, is much like that ecosystem in the aquarium when it's in balance. So there's plenty of water, the water is clear, it's carrying uh, and supporting the life inside. And then inside, anything can pass through. A a tremendous amount of variety of experiences can swim through and be supported by this quality of the healthy water. But many of us wouldn't have traveled all the way up to Boston just to see the water. You know, this, uh, just to see a clear tank would not have been that interesting. So we get interested in all the little events that are happening, but they're happening because of the quality and the health and the clarity of the water that's supporting them. Consciousness and awareness um, are much like that. So just by beginning to attend to your direct life, beginning to attend to the body sensations you have, beginning to attend to the moment you're in as you're driving, as you're in a conversation, as you're waking up in the morning, any part of your day, that attention, that relationship is really the water of awareness. Um, And your life is sort of flowing through that. The more spacious, the larger your tank, the more the sense of no matter what wanted to pass through, no matter what life offered, um, there would be room for it to pass through and I wouldn't have to be reactive to it. It's like if you take a hundred fish and you scoop them up in a net and they start uh, squirming against each other and fighting against each other as they bump into each other, that's a lot of agitation. And you take those same fish and you put them in a large tank, they relax, and the bigger the tank, the more space they have to swim and live as they need. Building this quality of awareness and attention is like having a larger tank. It's like having a larger tank and uh, clearer, cleaner water for whatever is happening internally and externally in your life. And so the quality of attention, the quality of awareness is subtle and it may not be the most interesting thing to cultivate, and yet it's the very backdrop of what makes the mind, the heart, and the body healthy is having this open, spacious, intimate relationship to what's happening, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It's not the strategy most people live by. 
Most people live by a strategy of pushing against unpleasant experiences, chasing after pleasant ones and spacing out on the neutral ones. But this other analogy of having intimacy with whatever is happening in your life before you intervene, you can definitely intervene to increase the pleasure. You know, you can go out and get more chocolate. You can go out and uh, listen to the music that you like. You can find the friends that you enjoy. You can go to the parks you like. You can definitely pursue pleasant experiences, but you can pursue them with a sense of open spaciousness as opposed to a driven quality. And then being able to deal with unpleasant experiences with the same open spaciousness, the same um, quality of relaxed intimacy, even with unpleasant experiences. I had that happen once where um, I was in the middle of, there was one of my favorite Burmese teachers had come to America finally, and I was able to help translate and interface him with this community, and I've been dreaming about this for years. But in the middle of that, my appendix almost burst, and it was very painful, and I really wanted to be there, and then that became less and less of a priority as I just wanted to live. <laughs> and living became less and less of a priority because the pain was so strong. I was like, oh, I don't know about living right now because the pain is so strong. Mm, you know, <laughs> any way out. Um, <clears throat> but I got taken to the hospital, and um, there was a way where at some point the pain was so uh, overwhelming that checking out wasn't a possibility and fighting it wasn't a possibility. Um, th- those were both exhausted. And at some point there was just this stabbing pain. And then I think due to the training I'd had up to that point, there was a way I could relax into the waves of the pain. And it became, the hospital became a very lucid place. And people who came to talk to me, and um, there was a clarity of that exchange that, um, began to make that day feel very special. I mean, it was not, it was bordering on life-death, but not really, but for the drama of the story, let's say it was life-death. Um, <clears throat> but it, it, it brought a wakefulness and a sense of priority and a sense of clarity to a, a life I'd been kind of living up to that point, flowing along, managing well enough, to a sense of vividness came and a chance to be there with my body and appreciate this incredible miracle that I take for granted. You know, where are the miracles? Where are the miracles? And I was like, you're living in one. You know, this thing is amazing. And I got to come more fully into my body. And then seeing my friends rally around and their priorities shift and then come to the hospital and um, unpleasant experiences when met can be quite beautiful. Um, they're not what you would first choose, but knowing how to relate to them when they come versus shutting down or going numb or checking out. Um, it's good to have that capacity. And so, again, not being a lightweight to life, but knowing how to step up to meet life as it is. I worked in a hospice ward for a year as a volunteer, and most people are pretty checked out around the dying process. And when you would see people who were trying to be conscious around the dying process and what that took, and then those people who could actually sit by someone as they were dying, um, and then to be with someone in the moment of their last breath and not freak out, but actually be there. And then 
know that that person hadn't died alone and knowing that you had been there to witness this amazing transformation of their life. It took a lot of being there and dealing with my own associations and my own freak out around death, but saw that I could extend my capacity not to numb out or manage or um, find some way of getting through that without actually feeling it, but opening my capacity to feel in an unpleasant situation, someone passing and often in pain, but to actually be there so they weren't alone and then watch how that would change me, what the rest of my month would be like having been with somebody who had passed and the gift that was there. So there's, um, there's tremendous benefit knowing how to be with unpleasant experiences and not just run away from them. Because a lot of our life is fairly neutral, it's not overwhelmingly pleasant or unpleasant, knowing how not to just space out and go on automatic pilot is important for neutral experiences. And then knowing now how not to get lost around this, um, the charge of pleasant experiences the things that we obsess about and want and crave and look forward to and struggle over, you can really struggle with pleasant experiences. Um, Okay, I'll tell you this one story. Um, There's a cafe that I like to work in and it's one of the reasons I like to work in is that it's pleasant on so many levels. Um, I like the, the quality of the people who show up that's on Hate Ashbury. So <laughs> there's a lot of interesting people watching when people come in on, on Hate Street, depending on what the current trends are. It's a colorful group of people. They play interesting music. I like their coffee. So I like to settle down. I can do you know several hours of good work there um, on my computer. I like their chocolate. I like their cookies and I like their coffee. So I can kind of like set myself up and I have just pleasure on every level. It's nice and very reliable day in, day out. It just kind of, it's a win. And so this is a story story I tell a lot because it was one of the, the big slap across the face of why I would struggle with pleasant experience. I mean, it's pleasant. Why could pleasure lead to struggle? And how big a struggle you can make over small shifts in pleasure. So one day I'm sitting there, working away, and I'm not as happy as I usually am. I'm like, oh, maybe I'm in a bad mood. It's like, no, my mood's pretty good. No, it's not the mood. Like, well, maybe the people have changed. No, the people haven't changed. Same people. Mm. It's not as satisfying today, and I can't figure out why. I'm typing away, but I get curious about this. I'm like, some part of me is grumbling, and I can't figure out why I'm grumbling. And I just take a look around and looking around. It's like, it's not the people. It's not me. It's not the work. Like, I'm just like. What is it? I can't figure it out. And I forget it a few times, but it keeps coming back. I guess some part of me is a little ticked off, and and I don't know why. And I finally look around, and it's the cookie. (laughs) 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 They changed the brand of the cookie, and I didn't like it as much. I was like, like really? Okay, wow, I found it. So this is this is why it's not a good day. (laughs) It's like. I'm like 90% satisfied, but I'm 10% not satisfied, and I'm bummed out about it. I'm kind of struggling with like, why would you struggle over this? So I, so I bit it. I was like, yeah, it's not the same cookie, but like, 
It's definitely got chocolate. It's definitely got sugar. It's definitely got fat. It's definitely got flour. It definitely was baked. It's a good cookie, but I, I like the cookie they had last week. <laughs> and this isn't doing it for me. It's definitely pleasure, but it's not enough of the pleasure I wanted. And so that struggling over pleasure, it doesn't come fast enough. When it comes, it's not strong enough, and it leaves too quickly. <laughs> But that's a pleasant experience, and yet the net effect is dissatisfaction. Not fast, didn't come fast enough, wasn't strong enough when it came, and it left too soon. And so we can bind ourselves up in that. So once I had solved the problem, I was like, okay, I can deal. You know, I've, I've dealt with more difficult things than this. There have been bigger challenges to life, so I can let this one rest. Go back to typing. I can't let it rest. <laughs> I can't let it rest. It's like, and then this thing starts to happen. It's so small, I'm not paying attention to it. It's so small of an issue, I think, that I'm not really tracking it that well. But this mind starts, this story starts to build in the back of my mind. And it begins with, I'm a loyal customer. <laughs> and I think they should know that they don't have as good a cookie. And so that seems like a very valid point of view. So I take this displeasure I'm having, and rather than really letting it go, I lock onto it, and I start strategizing around it. And I start to feel this little bit of injustice, this little sense of like, I come in here probably a couple years by now, and they see me, how happy I am with the cookie that they have. <laughs> they should know that one of their loyal customers is not as happy as he was last week. And so I'm just going to let them know. And I start building this case and it makes so much sense to me why these people should know my little opinion about the cookie. And before I know it, because I'm not tracking it, it, it actually locks on the back of my mind and becomes a, like a truth. And I see myself putting the plastic back on the cookie. And I look over and there's this huge line of like 10 people ordering coffee and they're making espresso and whatnot. And like, I'm going to walk over there and I'm going to tell them about this cookie. And, I like, and there was a, a, a lucky moment because I could have actually gone with the whole thing and interrupted them and pretended to be very calm and patient and rational while I described to them very carefully <laughs> how upset I was about this brand of cookie. And luckily that whole thing popped and I saw both the attachment to the pleasure, the struggling over it, and then the sense of self that had felt injured by this, and then my trying to reestablish this self by convincing them to change their whole process around the cookies they order. And, you know, I could actually adapt. <laughs> and that was a better strategy. So, anyways, when I saw that, how much I was willing to struggle and self and strategize around protecting my pleasure, um, it it made me see how much of my life had a backdrop of this strategy, protecting the pleasures I have, <coughs> wanting them to come sooner, wanting them to be bigger than they actually are. I remember coming, driving across the country once and getting to California, and I was so excited to see a sunset over the Pacific Ocean. I've been looking forward to it for a long time. I drove there and we got this perfect spot. Definitely got there in time for sunset and I had to drive really fast to get there. But finally, I, oh, here we are, the sunset over the Pacific Ocean. And I was like, 
Eh, you know, it's like it's not one of the more colorful sunsets. I was expecting like it would be brilliant, and it could be a little more pink, could be a little more of this. I'm like, wow! I'd looked forward to this for so long, and it wasn't as pleasant as I had hoped it would be. And so I was disappointed in California and the Pacific Ocean. (laughs) Like not like the Atlantic. What can I say? But this um, this Vedana quality, the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, it plays out and. It's interesting that of the many things that the Buddha asked people to track, this is the one thing that he pulled out, and he pulled out four actually, but this is one of the four things he said, you really need to track this. You really need to track the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral quality of experience because you will be ruled by this. Not knowing this, it's like having, um, this teacher Philip Moffat talks about being a puppet on a string, and you just are being pulled around by the search for more pleasant experiences or running away from strategizing against unpleasant experiences. And you can do that consciously and not stress about it and do it wisely, but you can also be very compulsive around um, trying to increase more pleasure, trying to run away from, uh, tune down, unpleasant, and you get away with checking out on neutral experiences and so why put the effort in? And that's one way to approach life. The long-term effect of that is that you tend to, we tend to, in order to not feel unpleasant experiences, we tend to give up on feeling at all. And so we tend to live in a very narrow range where we don't actually get to feel the huge um, expanses of pleasure that's possible because we didn't, we don't really want to invest in and feel the range of unpleasant experiences that are possible. And we don't want to really put the work in to feel, to stay, to stay conscious with neutral experiences. And so we'll just let habit carry over the day. But that tends to reduce the range of experiences we're willing to tolerate at all. Another example of this um, is that I grew up in Rhode Island and we would have severe winters, but you would so appreciate uh, summers. You so appreciate the first spring day and the whole turning of the, sum- of the summer through the fall into the winter and it, it, the weather that you had to uh, confront was amazing. And then I had one friend who went to live in California for um, a year and came back and he had totally changed. It was like the sense of ease and well-being was deeply established in him. <laughs> I was like, oh, you, seem, you seem happy, but there's this sort of New England pride of like, but you seem uh, like you're not willing to face the difficulties of life. <laughs> you're sort of now very, very pleasure-oriented and very kind of, yeah, just like the cool 70 degrees. That's what I like about life. <laughs> and it's like, well, you know, we... There's a great range in this sort of this um, this Yankee stoicism of being willing to hit the hard winters and being willing to face that. And then, since I've moved out here to California, I've you know somewhat embarrassed on the one hand um, and quite grateful on the other that I'm now a 72 degree guy. <laughs> and that uh, you know it's like when will this rain go away? I can't believe it's still raining. <laughs> and I call my dad, I was like, yeah, you know, it's, not, it's like 55 degrees and the rain won't let up. And he's just like, 
I'm shoveling snow in 10 degree weather. I don't want to hear about your, you know, your rainy afternoon. And I'm like, I know, but it's supposed to be sunny by now. <laughs> like how quickly I've become a California lightweight. But, you know, it also brings a great sense of ease. But the, the thing that snuck up on me was uh, how, how narrow my range of comfort has become. And in New England, you don't get that opportunity. So you have to contend more. And there's a sense, and I kind of agree with that. I mean, it, uh, I, don't wanna, I don't know why I'm going off on this as much as I am, the New England, California thing. But when I go back to visit them, there's something I love about having to actually shovel my, the, the, the sidewalk. And my dad says, yeah, like, try, try February when you've been doing it for months and months. It's like, yeah, I like to do it once or twice, it's true. But <clears throat> I love that. I love that, that a challenge will come like that and everybody has to cope with it. Um, and then when the storms do pass and the sun comes out, how much you appreciate that. Whereas too many sunny days in a row, you take it for granted. And it's just, and then you get bummed out by a little bit of rain. Um, and to say that that's you know, already happened to me, um, that I've lost that capacity. Um, when I was a monk in Burma, I worked with two different teachers. And the first teacher I, worked, I went to um, was Saida Upandita. And he has a reputation for being a warrior monk. Um, and so when I ordained, with him, um, I ordained in January, and there really aren't many cold parts of the year in Burma, um, and even in the cold parts of the year, at least where I was, it's hot at eight o'clock in the morning. You're already starting to perspire a little bit. But when I ordained, they gave me this very thin polyester robe, which is really good for most of the year, but it's not so good from three in the morning to eight o'clock in the morning in January. <laughs> and so one of the things I had to face more than I ever had faced was the sensation of cold. And um, the first time I we went on the alms walk, I was, I was just shivering the whole time. And I got very worried that I was gonna get sick. Um, and so I went to him and I said, so how is it now that you've ordained? You know, how is the, the holy life? And, like, oh, I'm, I like it very much. I'm very inspired, but um, I'm freezing in the morning. I'm just so cold, and um, <clears throat> I can't really wear all the warm things that I brought because they're not monk's clothes. And so I'm not so sure this is going to be healthy for me. I'm not from your country, so I'm getting really cold. And he said, your job is to be mindful of feeling cold. And I was like, oh, I should have known he'd say that. <laughs> <laughs> Hmm, I was expecting sympathy, but I got, you know, step up to it, step up to feel it. And so the next day, I saw myself contracting around how cold it was, embracing myself, and saw that that was kind of exhausting. And if I could actually just be cold, I would still shiver a little bit, but my mind wouldn't be so agitated by the bracing against the cold. And then when the sun came up, um, I would get warm and there wouldn't be a, res a residual of this having been cold all morning. But when I braced against it, that's really where I think some of the illness was starting to come in is how exhausted I was by being braced against the cold. And if I could open up to it, as long as it wasn't actually threatening, I, I was surprised by how cold I could be and just meet it as an experience. 
um, because it was a truth and not have to brace against the cold. The same thing happened where um, we do the alms walks on with bare feet and they were repaving this road and the first thing they do is they lay down crushed rock and then they slowly lay down tar over it Um, and every day there was a hundred more feet of crushed rock I had to walk across um, for the first month and it was really sharp uh, jagged uh, rock it was really painful and every day there was that much more I had to walk across so again I go up to I make an, an appointment to see him and I'm trying to think, like, how can I phrase this to get sympathy? <laughs> how can I phrase this um, for something other than just feel it? And so I'm trying my best to, to ask politely if there's something other, some other way I could go about my alms walk. And he said, no, you have to feel the sharp rock. It's what you have to feel. It's what's there. So every time I would ask for the experiences to be lowered to my comfort or what I thought was the range of my ability, he would say, use this to extend your range of what you can feel. And so I would go walk on the crushed rock. And it was just sharpness. It wasn't actually harming my feet. It was just unpleasant. It was just sharp rock. And if you walk across it a certain way, if you really show up for it and you put your foot down and you feel it, you can know where to put your weight to modify um, how the sharp was impacting your foot. Um, So that was the great thing about working with him is that there was very little wiggle room that that all he wanted me to do was meet the experience for what it was. And there wasn't really much intervention um, that he offered, just rise to to meet more of what life is already offering you. Um, Another great thing about practicing in Burma, like I I don't know what I was thinking, I thought, They've been doing it for a thousand years and you see maybe in Hollywood you see these pristine monasteries that are built on the perfect side of the cliff with the egrets flying by and the sun is always, the light is always good somehow. There's never bad light and these very, you know, um, enlightened floating monastics would waft by and soon I would be one of them and (laughs) I could leave the turbulence of the West behind. But um, I had a rude awakening. to the truth of what being, you know, what it's like to practice there. Um, but it was more liberating than just sort of being wafting on my mountainside, you know, being free only on a mountainside. Um, in, in Burma, there's, in the monastery, they're almost always building something. And then there's this, it's, it's not true, but it, it's almost true. There's a sense that if you build a building by the time you're halfway through building it, this side needs repair <laughs> already because of the elements in Burma and the materials. And so by the time you finish the building, you have to start, and there's waves and waves and waves of repair on any building, and they're always building new buildings, so there's more and more work that has to be done. So you go to these monasteries, and they're quite loud, actually, of construction. And there's um, one person's job who's it's his job to straighten bent metal with a metal hammer. (laughs) And so he just is beating metal all day long with a metal hammer right next to the place you're supposed to be meditating. And there's that, and there's the cooks, and they're arguing about what they're cooking, and there's the heat and the mosquitoes and the ants, and it's like, what was I thinking? (laughs) Where's my pristine mountainside with all, you know? And again, 
when people practice there, rising up to the experience that you're being offered rather than modifying the experience down to your tolerance level. But can you actually meet the experience for what it is? And that's actually where the freedom begins to be unconditional. Unconditional freedom is freedom in all conditions. So whatever conditions you find yourself in, can you be free in those conditions? Well, if my only freedom is on the mountainside with the light ever perfect floating by, you know, if that's it, then that's the only place I'm trapped there for the rest of my life. But if I can live in a Burmese monastery with all the banging and clanging and the cacophony of sounds and and all the little injustices that, that invaded my dream <laughs> and actually rise to meet them, um, then there are fewer conditions that I'll be trapped by. And that way it's perfect to be challenged by life and to see that every challenge can be a possibility of contracting and having to negotiate not feeling life or using every moment of life to expand your range of freedom. So if it's neutral experiences, you have to expand to want to be there for them and find just the being alive, content and satisfying. It doesn't have to be laced with anything sweet or tantalizing. Just the being alive is amazing unto itself. And if life gives you unpleasant experiences, you could flinch or you could meet the experience and then respond without contracting. And the pleasures that you're being offered, can they be enough? Do they have to be 10 times bigger? Do they have to last 10 times longer? Can you enjoy the ones that are coming for it as they are? And then cultivate them, cultivate them, but without a, cl a clinging, grasping, struggling. And then your ultimate freedom would be where no matter what came your way, you could meet it. You could meet pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral experiences without struggling, without dissatisfaction, stress, and grief. And that's that quality, again, of this aquarium analogy, is that the water, it just is. The water is floating in the tank, and it doesn't matter which fish is passing through. It doesn't <clears throat> freeze or, or back up when the shark comes. It doesn't cling to the angelfish because it's so beautiful. The water feels everything. It just floats there and it feels everything intimately. It's just as willing to flow across the skin of a shark or a jellyfish or that, that weird ugly grouper fish as it is the really amazing seahorses and angelfish. Water is just willing to be intimate and it's willing to support whatever wants to pass through it. And that's what uh, unconditional freedom tastes like. And, and we all have that. We all have a range where we are free, where we can open to feel life and taste life and be intimate with the life we have. But it's a range. And what happens at the edge of that range? How do we extend into being more conscious where your other patterns kick in? And all we have to do with this practice of mindfulness is actually know it, know the qualities, know the sharpness of the rock, know the heat, know the cool. If it's in the body, feel it before you respond. If it's emotional, know the emotional qualities, know the heat of your own anger, 
know the agitation of your own fear, know the, the droopiness of your own disappointment, know the lift of your own optimism, know these things, allow them to be, and then choose and interact with life, but not from a compulsiveness, from a sense of ease and intimacy with things just as they are, and then take your step forward. So that takes us to the end of the talk. Thank you very much for your attention. Really lovely to spend the morning with you.